you are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Now, there is much that can be said and has been said on the topic of divorce and marriage. There's so much to be said that we don't have enough time in one 35-minute sermon, let alone a 60-minute sermon, let alone an hour-and-a-half sermon. Who knows how long I will go for today? Because on these two verses of, of alone, alone, you can find books that fill libraries. If you guys have ever seen or watched uh, the director's cut of some movies, like the director's cut of Lord of the Rings, it's like... Um, <laughs> It's so much longer than the already long version of Lord of the Rings. I just want to let you know, there is a preacher's cut of this sermon stowed away because I don't have enough time to unpack everything that you just heard read here. And many of you are going to have more questions leaving this sermon than you probably had coming into this sermon. But the beauty of a Christian community is that The church is not just on Sundays. That we exist as a community every day of the week to care for one another, answer each other's questions, be patient with one another, and be steadfast and commit to long-suffering with one another as we dive into these difficult topics. And so what I would love to do, just for a couple minutes, before I get into teaching this text, I I want to set us up with a few qualifications before I teach the meat of this passage. The first thing, what I want to attempt to do here, is what I attempt to do every week when I come before you, is to not add to Jesus' words, nor take away from Jesus' words. I don't want to add to Scripture or take away from the historical context that this was spoken in. Because we cannot treat Scripture like a prepared meal that we prepare at the beginning of the week, only to be taken out when we need it like a proof text for a topic. No, all of Scripture has to be read in the context of the whole of it. That this passage exists not in an airtight Ziploc baggie for our benefit, but no, it it exists in the context of one large sermon, the Sermon of the Mount. It also exists in the context of all of the Gospel of Matthew, as well as all 66 books of God's holy and inspired and written word. So what we are aiming to do here is not make this text mean something to us that it did not mean to them. We do not want to make this text mean something to us that it did not mean to their original audience, to Jesus' original hearers. That's the first thing I want to qualify this with. Second, many of you in here are not yet married, and it's very easy for you to hear this text and check out. I want to plead with you. 
to lean in, to listen. Many of us, we come to the books of the Bible like this, and we come with our debit card of, of experiences, and we treat it like an ATM, expecting to get an emotional boost or a word for today. And you've heard me use this illustration before. We have to come to God's word like a savings account. Like we're putting in little bits of wisdom and wealth over time so that when we need it most, we will have spirit-filled responses in those moments. And to the unmarried in here, let me just plead with you. I need you to know the teachings of this passage for my marriage's sake. I need you to know the teachings of this passage for your friends' marriages. It's not just married people who are allowed to teach married people. Can I get an amen? It's not just single people who just teach single people. No, we don't believe that Scripture says you have to have the same life experience to teach somebody else. And so to the unmarried, I plead with you to lean in, to be ambassadors of reconciliation because some of your friends' marriages are in trouble and they need this truth. And God so loves your friends that he's going to send you with the presence of Christ to minister to them as ambassadors of reconciliation. The third thing I want to preface this with, there are many in here who've been affected by adultery and divorce. Some of you have committed adultery. Some of you have been victims of your spouse committing adultery on you. You know the hurt. You know the tears that this, this brings. And some of you have experienced the, the horrors of divorce. But others, by God's grace, you've experienced the sacrificial redemption and forgiveness in your marriage, even though your spouse might have committed adultery on you. And hearing teachings on this just opens up those wounds even more. And not only have marriages been affected by this, but there's parents who, who are now or recently have watched their grown children be ravaged by adultery and divorce. There's even children who watch their parents suffer from divorce and adultery. And even when I talk to grown men and women today, they're still suffering the consequences of their parents' divorce when they were five years old. And what I want you to hear is that Jesus has compassion for you. That he knows you. He loves you and he sees you. Finally, fourth. As I prayed and typed out these thoughts of what to say to you, I was in tears for you. I can teach on biblical orthodoxy all day long. But if it's not filled with compassion and mercy and the love of God, 
it is worthless. It's like a loud, clashing gong that is annoying to all its hearers. That if I teach this without compassion, I'm no better than the Pharisees that Jesus had woes for. And so my hope and prayer today as I teach this is that you would feel and experience the compassion of Jesus as we dive into this difficult topic. And because I'm convinced that Jesus' teaching, not just on this subject, but all subjects, is intrinsically good. It's good for individuals, it's good for marriages, and it's good for all society. We have to be both courageous and compassionate as we teach this. And notice I didn't say as I teach this, but as we teach this, because this is to equip you to go out and teach all that Jesus has commanded so that you make, might make more disciples for his namesake. So this is what I'd like to do today. I'd like to answer one question now that we got those qualifications in. This is the question I want to answer. How does Jesus view divorce and remarriage? How does Jesus view divorce and marriage? And what we'll observe is, is two points. The first point is what was said. What was said in the past about divorce and marriage? And in the second point, we're going to look at what Jesus said about divorce and marriage. And what Jesus will tell us is that what God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, let no man separate. It's heavy, I know. But are we ready to dive in? First point, what was said? Now Jesus, like he's been doing with with all these commands, you've heard that it was said, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Those are coming from the Ten Commandments. And we might think that he's just going to keep going down the line here. And he's going to get it to the Seventh Commandment. And he's going to say, you've heard that it was said, do not steal. But Jesus doesn't go there. He goes to a different Mosaic law. A Mosaic law that talks about what a person's option is if their spouse has any sexual immorality found in them. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 31. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is summarizing Deuteronomy 24. That if a a man finds in his wife no favor or any kind of sexual indecency, then divorce, it is permissible. And this is not to be confused with commanded and not to be confused with a lifestyle choice. See, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, you can turn there if you want, is the most extensive section on divorce in the Old Testament. And the only provision there for divorce is one thing, sexual indecency. That's it. Paul will then add later on in his letter to the Corinthians that if a non-Christian spouse wants to leave, and abandon their Christian spouse, then the Christian spouse is free to divorce. They're permitted to. And some might even say they're free to remarry. But our passage today 
is not about remarriage. It's not primarily about remarriage. No, because we only have limited time, we just want to hone in on what Jesus is honing in on in this Old Testament passage. And why is Jesus bringing this up? It's because the religious elites, the Pharisees, were obsessed with divorce. Later on in Matthew 19, this is what the Pharisees are doing. And the Pharisees came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Do you see that language for any cause, if you can bring that back up? That language for any cause comes from a rabbinic tradition from the school of Hillel. Can you say Hillel? Now this guy Hillel, he was lax and lenient compared to another rabbi named Shammai. Can you say Shammai? Now Shammai was to the letter and to the spirit of the law. But Hillel, when he interpreted these words from Deuteronomy 24, we'll read them here in verse 1. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, this rabbi, he taught that no favor in the husband's eyes and sexual indecency in her means anything that the husband wants it to mean to satisfy him and to benefit him. See, in those days, the only people who can file for a certificate of divorce were men. Therefore, husbands, if they got tired of the way their wife looked because they were too fat, too skinny, didn't like the color of clothes they wore, they could get rid of them. It was even written in Hillel's school that if he didn't like the way that they cooked for them, If they burnt their food, then they can legally, legally write a certificate of divorce. Now, I can see the look on all y'all's faces. This is disgusting. This is wrong. Hillel's view doesn't look after women. It only looks after the benefit of the husband. But isn't this eerily similar to all of the reasons that we hear for divorce today from both men and women? I'm just not attracted to them any longer. I just don't see my life going in the direction they want to go. This marriage is not really benefiting my career goals or my life goals. This marriage really isn't fulfilling my personal happiness. See, the reality is we are no different than the laxity and leniency of Rabbi Hillel. Some of you might even turn your nose up at him, and yet we sit and we approve of and participate in the same stream of thought as his followers, that if my spouse does not benefit me, call the divorce lawyers. That's why these Pharisees asked Can a man get a divorce for any reason in chapter 19, verse 3? But this is how Jesus answered. Let's look at his words. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage, Jesus says, was God's creational intent from the beginning. They were to exist solely for the union of the two. They're no longer two, but they're now one flesh. They exist not for the benefit of self, but for the benefit of the other and the good of the other. They are one. He says, what God has made one, don't let anyone or anything separate. See, these Pharisees were preoccupied with divorce. Jesus was preoccupied with marriage, with the permanence of marriage. Marriage, Jesus said, is God's idea. Divorce is man's idea. And we, like the Pharisees, we want to know why there seems to be this discrepancy between what Moses seemed to be permitting, and what God's intent was. Because the Pharisees, they go on in 1917 and say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? The Pharisees were so caught up in what was said, our first point. Or were they really caught up in what? Moses said. Let's see what Jesus said. It's our second point. Jesus says in our text for today, Matthew 5, 32, he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then he goes and he doubles down on his theology here when he talks to the Pharisees. Why did Moses command divorce, they ask? And Jesus responds in Matthew 19, 8 through 9. Let's receive his words here. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. See, Jesus quickly corrects the religious elites. Quickly corrects them. Moses did not command divorce. Moses allowed it. It was a concession for one very limited situation. Sexual infidelity. Jesus is siding with the rabbi Shammai and not Hillel. See, what Jesus is saying is divorce is permissible, but it's not preferable. These Pharisees are misrepresenting Moses. They're claiming he commanded it, and Jesus is saying, no, he just simply allowed it. Why? Because you have hard hearts. Let no man separate what God has joined together except in the case of this Greek word pornea, which we translate as sexual infidelity. That when adulterers do not live as one true marriage partner, a break happens in reality and the legal divorce is just a recognizes that reality. Do you see what Jesus is saying? It's, it's permissible, 
but it's not preferable. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Do you remember what he says in in Matthew 5? He says that anybody who marries someone who's been divorced unbiblically, what are they doing? They're committing what? Adultery. And then in Matthew 19, he says for for the man who divorced his spouse, if he goes on and marries someone else, He's committing adultery. Jesus is so committed to the oneness of one man, one woman, and one marriage for one life that he even goes on to say that this wicked husband who divorces his wife for any and every reason makes the woman commit adultery. Did you see that in chapter 5, verse 32? He makes her commit adultery. What does that mean? makes her commit adultery. We have to remember that in Greco-Roman culture, which Jesus existed in and Jesus' disciples lived in, women, especially women who were not married, were seen as a burden on society. There were taxes for even widowed uh, women that if if they did not get remarried within a certain amount of time, They would be taxed. And then if a woman was single for too long, they'd be taxed. So Jesus is not blind to the reality that someone who who gets divorced by a man who wants to divorce them for burning their food or a man who wants to divorce them because they don't look as good as they used to look. They're a prime target for remarriage and therefore Adultery. Did you notice? They saying the only grounds that a man could do this for was sexual infidelity. And there's something else interesting going on here. In both cases, both in this text and the text that we looked at last week, who is Jesus talking to? Men. If any man looks at a woman with lustful intent, if any man divorces his wife, he's only addressing men because he wants his community to be an upside-down community compared to the world around them, where women are not objectified in his community, where women are not seen as commodities in his community. But women can come in and they're protected from that long gaze of men who would objectify them. They're protected from the men who would divorce their wives from any and every reason that would only benefit the husband but disadvantage the wife. Jesus is saying, not in my kingdom community. But this wasn't the only reason that Jesus didn't want them not to get remarried. Remember, this exists in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. What else is Jesus committed to? Do not be angry, but instead what? Quickly reconcile. Jesus is committed to reconciliation. Jesus wanted to see one marriage between one man and one woman for one life. What God has joined together must be permanent. 
Don't let anybody separate it. Now, Lauren and I have witnessed the beauty and the horror of this reality. My wife, Lauren, and I have sat down with, with many couples. On one occasion, we got to sit down with, with a couple where the wife committed adultery on, on the husband. And the husband, by God's grace, said, I'm committed to this marriage regardless of what she has done to me. I'm committed to forgive her. I'm committed to reconcile with her. Now, was this, this man permitted to get a divorce based on this exception clause? Yes. But he knew it wasn't necessary because he knew that if he have, has received mercy from God that he does not deserve, how could he not show mercy towards his adulterous wife that she does not deserve? If he has committed spiritual adultery on his God and God has forgiven him, why could he not then forgive his wife? And that marriage to this day is flourishing. Flourishing. But then we've sat down with other couples before where the one wants a divorce and the other one doesn't. And there's absolutely no grounds for the divorce except for um, I just fell out of love with the person. And so the one spouse leaves and then the other spouse begins to date again and then get remarried. This happens within a course of 12 to 24 months. And then the, the spouse who left, who abandoned their spouse, repents, comes back, wants to reconcile, and now reconciliation is off the table because now the spouse who was hurt and sinned against is now remarried. And this is why I think Jesus is pleading with us, like I pleaded, and Lauren, I pleaded with that couple that while your marriage, in your eyes, in the world's eyes, might seem to be over, redemption is still possible. While your spouse might be unfaithful to you because they have left you, a disciple's fidelity and faithfulness to Jesus' teaching on this, to not remarry, has to remain constant and steadfast. This is the overwhelming conviction of all of Jesus' teaching. This is the only passage that has this exception clause in it. That Jesus will say, you must remain faithful till death do you part, even if they've left you. Jesus doesn't want divorce. He wants reconciliation. God is joined together, let no man separate, he says. And isn't it interesting in this passage in particular that he doesn't give a pattern to break the cycle like he did with the other two? Right? He says, if you're angry, go and reconcile. Do you remember that? Or he says, if you lust in this way, gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. I want you to see how radical you must be in order to fight the sin that is killing you, your lust. But it seems like here, there's nothing to break the cycle. 
Then why did Moses give permission to divorce in this limited but serious sin of sexual immorality? Jesus actually did give something to break the cycle. He says, don't harden your hearts. That if you want to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, don't just obey Moses' accommodation here. The only reason why you would follow that accommodation is because you have hard hearts. Do you see what he's saying? The reason people get divorced is not due to the sexual infidelity of another spouse. What's the reason, Jesus says? It's because of your hardness of hearts. Which means we need not harden our hearts towards our spouse. And so husbands, where are you saying you cannot forgive your wife? Wives, where have you said, I don't need to extend mercy any longer? Maybe you're not married. Maybe you're sitting with a friend who is married in a horrendous marriage. Where are you saying to them, you know what, you just need to be happy. Forget making peace. Forget being a peacemaker. You just need to leave. Spouses, where are you saying, and refusing to be poor in spirit, where you say in your own heart, They have the log in their eye. And I don't even have a piece of sawdust in my own eye. This is what it looks like to harden our hearts. Where we're not able to forgive. Where we only see the other person as the problem in the relationship. And Jesus would kindly and compassionately say to you, you hypocrites. First, take out the log in your own eye so that you might see clearly to see the piece of sawdust that is in your own eye. I mean, isn't this nearly what's behind all divorces in our culture? It's usually never circumstantial. It's always a matter of the heart. Where people don't really fall out of love, what they fall out of is repentance towards one another. They fall out of forgiveness towards one another. They fall out of being merciful towards one another. They fall out of making peace with one another because people honestly think, even Christians in this room, think that marriage is the end all and the be all to this life. That marriage is the goal. Marriage is the fulfillment of life. And when your spouse inevitably disappoints you, and they will, can I get an amen from the married folk in here? They will. And they don't fulfill all of your wildest dreams and your goals, then you dispose of them because they are the problem and there's no problem here. This is what it looks like to harden your heart towards your spouse. Because the marriage, if you're honest with yourself, was never about serving the other, it was only about benefiting you like these wicked men who divorce their wives for any and every reason. 
And so what happens when one spouse doesn't get what they wanted or hoped for? What happens when the desire to be pleased and be fully known and fully loved is shattered by the reality that no human being could ever provide that for you? I'll tell you what happens. Become angry. You become bitter. Become less merciful. Instead of a commitment to making peace in that relationship, your commitment is to make war and leave Because most of us, if we're honest, have been formed by this culture that nourishes revenge and animosity and is not formed by grace and forgiveness. Because when we extend grace and we extend forgiveness, it's seen as self-hating, it's seen as weak, and it's seen as antithetical to God's justice. And so we remain angry in order to be more authentic. But that anger will fester and will ultimately kill your relationships and kill you, Jesus says, in hell. But where do some marriages find the power to forgive? Where did my friend find the power to forgive his wife who committed adultery on him? Where? He remembered the mercy he received from God when he committed spiritual adultery on his God. He remembered that this has always been the story of God towards God's unfaithful people. You might remember it, for those of you who have maybe grown up in the church or have been around Christianity long enough, there's a story in the Old Testament of a a prophet named Hosea. This prophet was called by God to marry a woman who God said, she will cheat on you. She will become a prostitute, but I want you to marry her. And after years of this difficult experience, one day Hosea took a walk after his wife left him. And he saw his wife down in the trading yards where she was going to be sold. And Hosea got all of his money And he went and purchased his wife back to redeem her and to reconcile with her. And God says, this is what I am doing for my people. I am purchasing them back. I am winning them back. Because this is a picture of my covenant love, my steadfast love that does not end toward my people. Even though they have not been committed to me, my love will always be committed to them. This is the picture. This is why God says, what I've joined together, let nobody separate. Marriage is meant to be this picture of this reality of God's commitment to his people. Marriage and reconciliation was always meant to be a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Gomer, Hosea's wife, do you know what she had to do in order to receive grace and forgiveness? Receive it. It was free, but it cost the giver much. Forgiveness forgiveness is not possible in a marriage without sacrifice. Forgiveness always requires sacrifice. No one can just forgive and just say, oh, of course I forgive you. There's no of course about it. Forgiveness is costly. That means that your heart 
has to be full of comfort. Your heart has to be full of compassion. Your heart has to be tender. Why? So that you can absorb all of the loss on yourself. So you can absorb all of the hurt and all the pain on yourself. So you can absorb the debt of the sin that was committed against you. You see, when you forgive, you bear the load of the wrong with a promise not to enact revenge on that person for what they did to you. When you forgive, you give up the right to pay them back with the same evil and ill work that they've paid to you. When you forgive, you are committed to being merciful. You're committed to peace. You are committed to forgiveness that is costly. And this is what Jesus has done for us in his life, his death, and resurrection. That when me and you have committed spiritual adultery on our God, he came to win us back and purchase us back. When we have worshipped the little g gods of this world, the gods of self-pleasure and self-benefit, Jesus comes as the true and better Hosea-like husband, and he came back to purchase us at a great cost. For Hosea, when he purchased his wife Gomer back, he purchased with her with the money that he earned from the sweat of his brow and his hands and his feet. But when King Jesus came to purchase us back, he came to purchase us back with the blood from his brow, with the crown of thorns poked in and made him bleed. He came to purchase us back with the nail-pierced hands and feet on the cross where he died for the forgiveness of our sins so that we, we, his church, can be reconciled back to God. Don't you see? Jesus didn't come for you because you've been faithful to him. Jesus came for you precisely because you haven't been. And he came to make you faithful. Jesus didn't come because you were lovely to look at or you're lovely to be with. No, he came to make you lovely and to make you lovable through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Jesus did not come for you because you held up your promise to never leave your God or never forsake your God. No, he came because you have forsaken your God. And Jesus was forsaken on that cross because he is so committed to you to win you back. Don't you know when the Apostle Paul says, this mystery is profound, that a husband will leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife. This mystery is profound, and he's saying, and I'm saying, it refers to Christ's sacrificial love for his church, for you and for me. Because what God intended to be together, he won't let anything tear apart. Not even you and not even your sin. What did God intend to be together? You and him for all eternity. God intended you to dwell with him forever and not even death itself can separate you from the love of God because Jesus experienced that death on your behalf. No, not angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor principalities can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What God intended to be together, God and man, for all eternity, he's not letting anything separate. And if this is how Christ has fought for the union of God and man, the union of you and God, 
Oh, what does that mean as we fight for the marriages that we are involved in, fight for the marriages that are around us, that we would fight for this peace. We would lay down our lives and sacrifice ourselves and serve ourselves for the, not only our own marriages, but for other people's marriages. That marriage, a man leaving his father and mother in order to cling to his wife, it's this beautiful picture of Christ in the church. That since Christ has never hardened his heart towards you, never hardens his heart towards us. It's a call then, husbands and wives, not to harden your hearts towards one another. And if Christ promises to never leave his bride, he promises never to leave you or forsake you, church, that you've been joined together by his blood, how much more then should men commit to never leaving their wives and wives commit to never leaving their husbands? We commit to this because this is what Jesus has committed to us. Would you pray with me? Father, this, is, this truth is hard to swallow. It's hard to live. We can't do it without you.